Welcome to the Skin Depth Podcast, where we deliver the latest in dermatology research directly to you. So welcome back everyone to the Skin Depth Podcast. My name is Caden Carver, and I'm one of your hosts. Today, we have a very special installment of the Skin Depth Podcast, where we will be interviewing a first author and kind of picking his brains a little bit just about the work he's done, the research that he's done, and then also some of his opinions on medical education. So today we have Dr. Amr Hussein. He is currently a dermatologist practicing adult and pediatric dermatology in Northern Virginia. He has a clinical interest in patch testing. Dr. Hussein is an internationally recognized speaker, writer, and educator. His writings on health policy, medical education, and the connections between healthcare and faith have been featured in prestigious media outlets, including the New York Times, The Hill, and The Baltimore Sun. He has also been interviewed by the New York Times, Al Jazeera, and PBS. He has published numerous articles in peer-reviewed journals and is the author of several book chapters. He has presented research at major conferences, including the American Academy of Dermatology, the World Congress of Dermatology, World Congress of Medical Law, and American Contact Dermatitis Society, as well as the American Society of Dermatopathology, Society of Investigative Dermatology, and the American Society of Dermatologic Surgery. In September 2022, Dr. Hussein was invited to meet with the President of Singapore to discuss innovative strategies for engaging youth with healthcare professionals. Dr. Hussein's unwavering dedication to medical education is evident as a sole dermatology resident in Georgetown's history to receive three consecutive nominations for the esteemed String of Pearls Teaching Award, winning it twice in a row. With fluency in English, Spanish, Portuguese, Hindi, and Urdu, Dr. Hussein effectively connects with diverse patient populations. Throughout his training, he has honed his skills through clinical rotations at prestigious institutions like the National Institutes of Health, Children's National Medical Center, Washington Hospital Center, and Georgetown University Hospital. He earned his BA in government and a minor in theology from Georgetown, as well as a Master of Arts in Public Policy degree and medical degree from the University of Chicago. Known for his welcoming demeanor and lighthearted nature, Dr. Hussein fosters a comfortable environment for his patients. His penchant for bad puns has earned him the nickname The Punisher, adding a touch of humor to his interactions. So without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Amr Hussein, and we're going to talk a little bit about his research today. Dr. Hussein, thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us today. Thanks so much, and I appreciate the nice introduction. Yeah, it's great to have you with us. Um, so I guess we'll just kind of jump right into it. I know you've probably got a busy schedule. So you recently authored an article entitled Allergic Contact Dermatitis Associated with Religious Practices, Review the Literature, published by the American Contact Dermatitis Society. Although I know a little bit about allergic contact dermatitis, I had never specifically thought about it in relation to religious practice. So I guess the first question I have for you is what inspired this research and kind of how did you get involved with it? Sure, yeah, so um, I've actually been interested in the impact of religion on health for many years. 
So back in college, I was a pre-med and also a theology minor. And one of my main activities was the Interfaith Council. So we worked with uh, different religious backgrounds to pursue dialogue and community service projects. And then coming to medical school, I was uh, talking to hospital chaplains and various you know people around the hospital that and involved with health and religion. And they found that this was really a missed opportunity for a lot of doctors. We just really don't learn this in medical school. And for many patients, it's a religion is a huge part of their life. So it's really uh, an important thing that we should learn how to talk about and learn how to ask so we can make appropriate recommendations. With regard to contact dermatitis, usually what happens is when someone tests positive to something on patch testing, you do have to do a clinical pathologic correlation to see what is the exposure that's causing that specific rash. And usually what happens is you recommend that they stop doing that activity or they make some modification to it. The problem is if it's part of their religion or their culture, there's really not a good way for them to stop completely doing the practice. And you really don't want to imply that the patients, at, at, they're basically, you don't want to blame them for their, their condition. So part of this research was to figure out what specific practices might be associated with contact dermatitis, and then what are some culturally sensitive ways that we can suggest modifications that allow the patient to continue practicing their religion, but then reduce their contact dermatitis. Yeah, that's awesome. And like you said, we don't really learn about it too much in medical school. Um, and they are kind of telling us, you know, view the patient holistically and all this stuff. So I think this is, you know, right in line with that. So very interesting. Um, I guess my neck, my second question for you is, can you give our listeners just a little bit more background specifically on allergic contact dermatitis and then also devotional dermatitis and a little bit about what that is? I know you touched on it a bit. Sure. Yeah, contact dermatitis uh, is one of the most common skin disorders that people experience uh, throughout the world. And there's some estimates that say about 20% of people have allergic contact dermatitis. It's a huge percentage. Um, contact dermatitis can be broken into irritant contact, which is about 80% of cases, and allergic contact. The difference is that irritant contact, basically anybody will experience an, a reaction from that specific uh, compound versus an allergic contact person needs to have a a specific allergy to a specific substance. And then when they are exposed, they'll experience a rash. So what we're doing with this uh, project was looking at a specific category of these called devotional dermatoses. This is a relatively new term, but a lot of people in literature have been using it to describe various rashes caused by religious practices. There can be contact dermatitis, but there's also various other ones. And there's some ongoing research that uh, we're looking at other practices and religion that might cause certain rashes. And all of these would be considered under devotional dermatoses. Okay. Yeah, definitely good to have that background. Very cool. Um, so I guess kind of diving into the project a little bit more with what you guys actually did. Can you walk us through the process of kind of obtaining the data for this study? Sure. So this was a uh, literature review of uh, PubMed. So we wanted to figure out a way to categorize the various contact allergens associated with various religions. So essentially what we did was we searched the terms contact dermatitis or devotional dermatosis and associated with uh, major world religions. The, the ma main challenge for this was determining which uh, religious search terms we were going to use. And the way we ended up deciding it was we picked the top five uh, established religions. So uh, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Sikhism. 
And when you, when you look at the breakdown by religions in the world, there's a category for indigenous or folk religions or like miscellaneous. And that's actually one of the top uh, traditions because it's just a catch all. So we weren't able to search for that. And that's that's possibly an area of future research. And then finally, we also added Judaism because uh, there's a, a high amount of literature um, on contact hepatitis in Judaism. And then we also searched like the specific term for each person of each religion. So Muslim for Islam, Christian for Christians, et cetera. And then we included studies that had a specific instance of allergic contact dermatitis and a religious or devotional practice. And we excluded any articles that had other reactions to uh, from a religious practice that were not necessarily contact dermatitis. Got it. Okay. Yeah, good to know. Um, and then... What were some of the key findings that you guys, you know, took away from what data you did collect? So the first thing that we looked at was how many articles mention specific religions. And we found that Hinduism was by far the most referenced. We only found about 36 studies total, which also shows that there's really a lack of research in this area. Mm -hmm. And um, Hinduism was the most referenced, followed by Judaism. Um, and then other religions only had like a handful of studies. Um, surprisingly, Buddhism and Sikhism only had one article apiece, even though they're among the most practiced religions. So again, this points to a literature gap in these areas. And the second major um, outcome was we looked at specific contact allergens that were associated. And again, by far the most common was diamine or PPD. This is a blackening agent in henna tattoos. And henna tattoos are actually practiced in a variety of traditions. And in our literature review, we specifically found it associated with Hinduism, Islam, and Judaism, although we know that it's used in other uh, traditions. Mm -hmm. And then we uh, looked at the, some of the top allergens and then suggested some uh, culturally sensitive modifications. Okay, that's very cool. Um, definitely yeah, a needed analysis, I would say. I know we maybe touched on this a little bit, but did any underlying trends emerge amongst the different groups um, that kind of maybe pointed you in a direction uh, and suggested future research or suggested kind of maybe what patients can do or what providers can do um, in this area? Sure. So a couple of things were uh, just characteristic patterns that uh, providers should know about. So PPD or diamine is a really common allergen. There's actually been a lot of good documented cases of henna tattoos causing contact dermatitis. So it's worth to just kind of reinforce that providers should be aware of this. One interesting finding I thought was um, in Judaism, a tefillin. So these are basically straps that are made of leather that often contain verses of the Torah. People wear them around their arms or around their forehead. And there's actually a lot of cases specifically on contact dermatitis in the leather from these straps. Hmm. And what was good about this uh, specific finding was that there are ways that patients can mitigate this dermatitis while still you know, practicing their religion. So they can try to use non-leather straps or a different type of leather that doesn't contain potassium dichromate, which is like a common allergen in leather. Or they can sometimes coat the straps with some kind of vegetable oil prior to applying it to the skin, which can yeah. reduce the dermatitis. And so that was an interesting finding. Some of the other uh, religions we found that really didn't have much data on them. And there definitely are um, underlying issues that we should discuss. So, for example, Buddhism, uh, the main thing we found was there's only one case report of this, but uh, incense burning causing an airborne contact dermatitis. This is actually a very, very common form of contact dermatitis around the world. And incense burning is really common practice in many religions. 
So my theory is that this is very underdocumented, and there should just be more research on the specific allergens and specific ways that we can counsel patients to avoid getting this. And then also for Sikhism, again, one of the most practiced religions worldwide, but there's a lot of theoretical uh, papers that discuss like things that may happen, but there's not like specific documented conduct dermatitis. So there's a lot of uh, specific religions that could benefit from more research, as well as the overall like indigenous folk religion category that I had mentioned before. Right, definitely. And I think a lot of it, kind of like you're saying, just comes back to being aware that this is kind of an entity and um, having providers document it a little bit better and report it better so that there is just more data out there, it sounds like. So uh, another question I have for you is, if as a dermatology provider, after doing this study, um, you suspect devotional dermatitis, what testing and management specifically would you recommend kind of based on the results? Sure. So the, the first thing to keep in mind is that whenever you're discussing anything with religion, there really is a balancing act between understanding kind of broad traits for many world religions who so have like a baseline understanding of what they practice, but then also treating every patient as an individual. Patients really, some of them don't practice the, the orthodox specific form of that religion. They might have their own beliefs. They might just practice their own kind of spiritual, but not religious thing. So it's really important to specifically discuss with the patient what practices they're doing and what, what religious belief kind of underlies that and not make generalizations about them. And then secondly, figuring out a, a, a tailor-made approach for that patient based on those specific findings. So for example, for tefillin, um, actually when I was doing this project for Judaism, I talked to an Orthodox rabbi and she said that many patients actually believe that wearing leather straps is required by their religion. So switching out for like another type of strap is really not going to happen versus other people might actually be okay with another type of strap to avoid contact dermatitis. So really it ends up being discussing the specific case with the patient and figuring out the best strategy. Yeah, definitely goes back to the individual, like you said. Um, so what implications do you think this study has for practicing dermatologists? I think we've touched on this a little bit, but I guess if you had any other kind of pearls to add or anything that you've seen in uh, your own clinical practice on this topic. For the general dermatologist, I, I would just advise to ask very broad questions about exposures. Sometimes it's very clear what the exposure is when someone has contact dermatitis, and a lot of times it really isn't. And sometimes people test positive to things that we say like unknown clinical significance. So it's really unclear whether they're uh, exposed to that compound, whether it's causing any kind of reaction. So just being aware of cultural or religious practices can help you expand your history taking and then potentially expand your differential. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you very much for walking us through that specific study and kind of for your insightful takeaways and the pearls that you had on that topic. Um, definitely, like you said, always important to take a holistic approach to patient care, consider the patients as individuals, and hopefully this study will enable providers to better do that and just broaden kind of their viewpoint and their perspective uh, in their own clinical practice. So switching gears a bit, and especially with uh, ARIS applications and interview season kind of right around the corner. I know you're also passionate about medical education. And I saw that you did some work um, kind of looking into the possible effects of step one, recently moving to pass fail. So can you talk to us briefly just about how you went about uh, going through this and then kind of what takeaways you found and what are some of the main messages you think 
Sure. So it's, uh, my position on this is very interesting because I was in medical school when this was announced. And now I've seen the whole transition from the discussion around it to people taking a pass-fail exam and then program directors having to look at that pass-fail exam to make decisions about students. And I've I've kind of seen many different angles of this as a student and now as an attending. And basically, I was trying to understand what patients or sorry, what students are going to gain from this and what potentially are some harms of this uh, process. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is I feel like students really weren't consulted with this change. And pretty much everyone I've talked to just directly has really been unhappy with it. And even some program directors I met, met with were also unhappy with it. So I'm also kind of curious about why this happened. I think the underlying reason was that step one was becoming used for something it was never designed for. Back when it was first designed, it was really a competency exam. So theoretically, like in most but most uh, professions, like the law, for example, you pass the bar, you can be a lawyer. That right. was basically what step one was. If you passed all three steps, you became a doctor. And the problem was once uh, people started using that score cutoff as a way to stratify applicants, that's when it started to take on this outsized importance. And really, it was never designed to do that. So a lot of people figured that we should just go back to what it originally was and just make it pass fail. And I think the challenge is that medical education has changed so much during that period that going back to really an archaic version of this has not really fixed the underlying problems, which is a lot of applicants for limited spots, not great selection metrics for applicants, mm -hmm. and enforcing program directors to rely on kind of not great metrics to select students. So this is kind of the the impetus behind this uh, project. Okay, yeah, definitely. And kind of having gone through step one and step two, uh, with step one being pass fail, and then step two being scored myself, I <laughs> I'm definitely interested in kind of what you found, and um, definitely have a personal interest in this in this topic as well. So, and I know you and I talked about this a little bit before this interview. But what was the process of um, not necessarily collecting your data for this, but just going about authoring this op-ed piece? Sure. So, yeah, part of this was I wanted to categorize the various reactions. And this article that I wrote for Kevin MD came out um, pretty much a day or two after the, the change was announced, because this was something that had been talked about for a long time. And what I did was I interviewed some of my colleagues in medical school at that time. And then some residents that I knew, as well as my program director, as well as a few other program directors that I knew. And I tried to break this down into when this policy happens, who are going to benefit from it and who are going to be harmed from it. It's like this winners and losers take on it. Mm -hmm. And actually, this uh, approach was inspired by um, Dr. Brian Promoti. So he's a nephrologist at, in Virginia, and he does a lot of pieces on Twitter about medical education. So he actually did a whole series on the step one going pass fail. And I kind of disagree with him on certain things, but his data is just very, very good. So that was another uh, main person that I, I looked at and I encourage all your listeners to search him and find some of his research as well. It, the, the summary is that the highlights, the winners are really gonna, I mean, we clearly see this playing out now is that step two is now just take on, taken on more importance than it was supposed to have. Step two is a slightly better test than step one in the sense that it's more clinical. But my issue with it is that now it's one data point so historically, students who didn't do as well on step one had an opportunity to improve their their score on step two and then show an improvement that would look good on residency applications. Now, students really have just like a one and done. It's almost like the exams in other countries where it's essentially you, your residency spot depends on, completely on what exam score you get. 
and, and on one day on one test. So right. I think that's a bit of a challenge in terms of students that have test taking anxiety or maybe have like a personal issue that come up on the day of the test. The second point, which I actually disagree with Dr. Carmody, was that students from top ranked schools are probably going to do better now and at the expense of international medical grads and DOs. And the reason for this is that step one was really a level playing field that anybody around the world could take the same exam and everybody would generally know what that means. And the problem is without this data point, there, there has to be some other way to select students. So aside from step two, the other things that people are going to look at now are letters of rec, um, your medical school, uh, MSPE, as well as your grades and your research. And students at top ranked schools tend to have better opportunities for research, better opportunities for letters of rec. So it really kind of solidifies that advantage that the top ranked schools had, and it really removes that level playing field. And then finally, I think a lot of uh, program directors expected that this would actually help reduce uh, students being applying to too many programs, because now that they have a pass fail step one, they can kind of change their trajectory in medical school and, and do more research or other things. The challenge, though, is that students often don't have their step two before residency apps go out. And we're seeing this this year. Mm -hmm. And students who maybe would not have applied to certain programs are now applying like very confidently. And right. there's not a great way for applicant or program directors really to choose among these various applicants. And having been like a, a residency uh, person on the committee, it, it was very challenging. I would often get like 40 applicants to read and I can only pick like four of them to get an interview. Mm -hmm. And even with a, without a pass fail step one, this was challenging and now it's becoming even more challenging. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think you definitely touched on uh, the main takeaways from from that project. And I think you bring up some really good points with that. Um, and I guess we don't really know all the answers and we're still figuring all that out. But with all this considered, what do you think the role of research in residency application and the match? How, how do you think that's going to be affected? And specifically with this being a research podcast, um, yeah, I guess, what do you think the role of research will kind of take on moving forward? So I definitely think research will have an outsized importance now is that the problem is anytime something is quantifiable, it's it just naturally people want to use it to quantify things. So mm -hmm. people with more projects are probably going to have at least a perception that they're, they've done more things. And a lot of people that take a research year have a, a large number of projects compared to people that just went straight through med school. And so I do encourage people to do research. And I think the main thing is going to be making sure that it's both quality and quantity of research. Right. So it is good to do pretty much any project that comes your way, but really focusing it on germ specific research is going to be a higher yield for applicants. And especially now that there's no step one, really the program directors are looking for commitment to derm. So a lot of times that can stem from research projects specifically in a certain area that a student really is passionate about, or it can be through service work or other avenues. But research is just easily quantifiable and therefore I think it can be helpful to have a certain number of projects specifically in Durham. In terms of research years, I get this question a lot. Mm -hmm. It's it's really interesting because historically it was really, basically if someone had a project they wanted to pursue, they would just do a research year. It didn't wasn't this kind of expected thing, but historically I've seen this become much more common now, especially after step one going past fail, pretty much everybody in our medical school is uh, suggested to take a research year if they wanted to Durham. And if they don't take a research year, it's seen as a disadvantage now. And I think part of that is perception. And some program directors really don't really care if someone did a research year or not. But one thing that is true is that a person who did a research year has 
much more access to letters of recommendation, perhaps from a program that they spend a year at, and they have more projects. So easily more quantifiable research that they can do. Yeah. So my general advice is that students should focus primarily on clinical grades and, and trying to impress on their rotations because those things are still more important in terms of selecting applicants. And the challenge is research is helpful in, in providing like a holistic application, mm -hmm. but students should really see research as an opportunity to build connections, whether that's with a specific mentor who can advocate for you or through a specific program that you've spent a lot of time at. Those are really the avenues that students can help match into a program. Just doing more research kind of just to do it is not necessarily going to be helpful, but it is something that is valuable to do. Yeah, definitely. I think that's really good advice and definitely good to get your perspective on that. Um, well, yeah, I think we kind of covered all the questions that I had. Um, so again, just thank you so much for all your information, all your input. And thanks again for joining us kind of on this episode of the Skin Depth Podcast. You're actually going to be the first uh, first author that we've brought on. So uh, I think it's a good one to start with. And we're very thankful for your time and just for, um, you know, all that you've added to this podcast. It's been great discussing your research and discussing your experiences as well as the role of research in dermatology education. So thank you so much. And we look forward to uh, staying in touch and talking to you soon. Thanks so much. So as we bring this episode to a close, thank you all for listening. We know it's been a slight deviation from our regular content, but we do hope that this was helpful to you and gives you a different perspective on research in dermatology. And we look forward to making this more of a regular thing where we bring authors on and pick their brains. And if you or someone you know has recently authored a paper or conducted research and would like to come on and talk more about that and break it down with us, we'd love to have you. Through our website, skindepthderm.com, you can reach out to us and we can try to set that up. Otherwise, thanks for tuning in. We hope this was educational for you and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the Skin Depth Podcast. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Skin Depth Podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Please send us any questions or comments to info at skindepthderm.com. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.